Good afternoon. Uh, it's a great pleasure to be here. My name's Jerry Baker. I'm the editor-at-large of the Wall Street Journal, based here in New York. It's a great pleasure, particular pleasure to be here in person uh, after so many, uh, so many events that haven't been able to be conducted like that. It was great to be here in real life, uh, IRL, as my daughters would uh, doubtlessly put it. So thank you very much indeed all for being here. I hope you've been enjoying the sessions so far. Um, it's great particularly to see you all so uh, wonderfully uh, ready for a very interesting discussion. You all look particularly well presented, not quite as well presented as those characters at the uh, Met Gala last night. I hope some of you uh, managed, to see, <laughs> managed to see that. And I don't see anybody, unfortunately, here wearing a Tax the Rich outfit as uh, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez was. Maybe that's to be expected at a hedge fund conference. But um, uh, anyway, we have a great panel, uh, a great topic. We have a very we have a dauntingly broad topic, private markets, uh, but I think uh, we have a, a panel who can provide some real focus and some real insights into that. And I have some questions uh, that I hope will uh, will provoke them uh, a little to uh, to focus to focus the topic down. So it is uh, obviously private markets have been uh, a remarkable expansion story for such a sustained period now. As you all know, I was just looking at, at some numbers. Um, the entire private capital industry, according to um, Morgan Stanley uh, assess, uh, estimates, entire private capital uh, sector accounts for about is currently about $7.4 trillion. They estimate that it will continue to grow to $25 trillion by 2025. And to illustrate the, again, just another illustration of the scale of the uh, extraordinary growth um, of all of the private markets, but particularly private equity over the last over the last 18 months since the pandemic hit, um, the market cap of the big five private equity funds I checked today was at $80 billion in March of 2020 when the pandemic got underway. And it is now $250 billion, more than threefold uh, increase. So it gives you a sense of this sustained increase. As I say, so I want to get into um, the reasons behind this, whether this, can, this extraordinary growth can continue, differentiate obviously between the different types of uh, private markets too, because we've got a nicely diverse panel here who can talk about the various aspects of it. So I'll introduce them. Uh, obviously, to, to my immediate left is Tom Lee, who's the chairman of AGL Credit Management. Um, thank you very much for being here. Virginie Morgan, who's the CEO of Eurasia in Paris, from Paris. Uh, next to her, next to Virginie is Suzanne Streeter, who's partner and head of uh, private equity and real estate at Partners Capital uh, Investment. And on the extreme left, Peter Gleistein, uh, who we were talking uh, backstage, tells me that uh, he's been in uh, the field of private credit for just about as long as uh, anybody, probably anybody, any of us knows. He's the CEO and CI, a Chief Investment Officer of uh, AGL Credit Management. So thanks all for being here. Suzanne, I'm going to start with you. I'm going to give you, I'm going to quote something to you that um, Q Song Lee, the Carlisle CEO, said on an analyst call uh, over the summer when he was uh, describing the extraordinary performance of uh, not only his company, but of private equity, private markets in general. And he put it like this. He said, deals are being completed on shorter timelines. Financings are being executed more quickly. Opportunities for exits are presenting themselves sooner. Funds are being raised faster than ever before. And accelerating uh, impact from disruptive technology and changes from the pandemic are powering an increased demand for private capital across all sectors and regions. I mean, being a kind of a cynical and contrarian journalist, my response to that perhaps is to say, you know, 
that sounds like it's a time that uh, things change. But is this as good as it gets? Can this, can this, can, Suzanne, sorry, can this continue? Well, well, thank you, Jared. It's a great question. I, it certainly is an amazing time for private markets. Uh, the returns have been very strong, and, and all the, the data points that you mentioned are, are correct, and that's what we're experiencing and seeing ourselves. I think there's no sign that anything is imminent. There's no change in sight. And I, I also say that limited partners, people who are looking to invest in private markets, are continuing to feel underallocated and are seeking um, alpha through private markets. So I don't see it as being a, um, a, a particular a asset class that's uh, imminent for decline or any significant risks. Obviously, even in the financial crisis, there were some bumps, but the, the asset class performed incredibly well. So we're still pretty confident that it'll continue for some period. Tom, do you see anything uh, to worry about? I mean, what, given this extraordinary growth, again, is it, is it, are we just set fair for continued growth? Obviously, there'll be differential performance, but is the market overall, are these, these various markets from VC to private equity to private credit, are they just set fair for continued expansion on this scale? Well, people like to say that private equity is the reciprocal of really bond rates with the values. And uh, obviously, uh, the rate on debts, rate on bonds, rate on loans are very, very low. So people can borrow. Uh, also, over many years, you will find that the private markets derive from the public markets. So you can't really separate them in terms of how they go. Uh, we, th we think we can, but, but we can't. So as the private market, uh, as the public markets have had a strong rebound, so have the pri private markets. And uh, right now things look very, very good. Uh, obviously we're priced to perfection. Prices are very high. Prices that we're paying are very high. You'll see in the paper that in some cases prices have gone at north of 20 times EBITDA, earnings before taxes, depreciation, and amortization. So. Um, uh, that's for a fast growth company. That's for a company with something possibly uh, transformative happening. But um, it's we are in an extraordinary time. I'd like not to call it a bubble, but we certainly have to be sure of ourselves now. Visiony, uh, from a European perspective, from Benjamin, again, this 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 boom has been global. Um, you know, there's been tremendous activity in Europe. UK has been obviously not not in the EU anymore, but the UK has been a, very much a focus of um, uh, inward uh, in in, in private 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 investment. What's what from the European perspective is this these same conditions supporting continued growth? Do you think? Thanks, Jerry. Thanks for having me. Um, just to echo on both Susan and Thomas' comment, I think the industry. So Susan is you know, talking from an LP and allocator standpoint and from a GP standpoint, Eurasio is an investor. Uh, we see also that industry um, growing very fast in the years to come and nothing happened by chance. We've professionalized, we're bringing more value add to our clients. The public market have been pretty volatile as well. So at least with private markets, you get long-term alpha performance with significant operating support from the team. So the value add, I believe, is, is what really counts in what, how we've developed over the last decades. And to Thomas' comment, um, clearly prices um, are to be watched these days. Assets are more expensive, but if you do bring to the table value add, transformation, build-ups, uh, operating leverage, ESG, responsibility, climate change, then you can potentially 
work hard on compensating the high price of your assets at inception and make you know decent and higher return than some of the public markets for your for your clients as far as europe is concerned i think you you find in some sectors you know better uh, priced opportunities like if you take the tech industry clearly something is happening in europe as we speak finally europe is awakening you know venture and growth amazing entrepreneur very strong academic level and you know training and now you know newcomers um significant money being poured into growing those companies which are still less expensive than what you have in the US so i think that could be interesting from an you know in investor standpoint uh but overall as you know jerry the world is pretty global so what you see in the US you you probably find in Europe as well Peter, as we were talking about this backstage, I think it was Suzanne who pointed out that even if that Morgan Stanley forecast of $25 trillion for total private capital uh, by 2025 is correct, that's still only a fraction of the total, uh, total value of, of public markets, uh, frankly, in the US alone. So that does suggest perhaps, and you talk particularly from your perspective in private credit, but more generally, that does, that does, that does suggest perhaps that there is, there's plenty of headroom. Plenty of headroom, and it's a huge opportunity because all of that private equity will be leveraged with private credit, and private credit in terms of the private markets investing strategies and asset classes is highly complementary. Because first of all, it's a cash income product, and in this environment of virtually no yield in most products, uh, in private credit, it's still available, and depending on the strategy and the asset class, it'd be available in size. And then, needless to say, but as you just inferred, um, private credit is at the top of the capital stack of any given company, so it's safer. So you get a combination of income and safety, of course, depending on on what the portfolio is like and how diversified and, and, and how low the correlations might be to other strategies. So credit is, um, is more popular, more interesting to people than it's ever been. And it has, it has a long way to go, I'll just add, Further to some comments that were just made with um, how good could it get? Um, well, the world's changing. COVID's changing everything at a high level and a low level. And when that's happened historically, um, there've been a lot of business changes. There could be social changes and maybe political changes, but there's certainly business changes, which is fueling this record level of LBOs and M&A, which of course is financed with private credit. And these are new opportunities companies i'll also comment you mentioned that i've been around the space a long time since the 70s actually i've never seen credit quality of new issue as as good as it is now and also well priced meaning priced high not low so it's a very good time to be investing tom the um, again this growth has been going on for a long time and, and as long as i've been a financial journalist quite a quite a long time i've been reading articles saying that this, uh, as, as private markets grow, they will be subject to diminishing returns. I mean, one of those kind of, you know, uh, early drivers, presumably, uh, of private markets was, was that <clears throat> still, especially in, a, especially in, a, in an environment of such low, uh, low interest rates, that the drive for, 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 for yield is such that there's been, you know, tremendous the search for those opportunities. Um, at, at some point, I mean, and yet again, as we've just been discussing, this, the, the demand for private assets continues to, to, to grow uh, exponentially, it seems. Is, uh, 
is there is 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 the sector kind of exempt from the law of diminishing returns? I mean, can we Let just me, expect this to go on? Pardon me. Let me get very specific, Jerry. Mm. Um, in terms of return expectations in PE in private equity, um, we always had a par or a standard, and that's that we should be returning a thousand over the concomitant public index. In other words, large cap buyouts really relate to, in effect, the S&P. If the S&P is, say, giving 8% a year over many, many years, so that large cap return should be about 18%, and therefore it sort of has been. Look at the KKR Blackstone. As you are going down into more of the mid-cap, okay, that uh, return expectation goes up. Why? Because the smaller to mid-cap company is riskier, okay? So that you, you as an investor need a higher return. So that return should be um, geared to the Russell, say. And if the Russell is at 10 or 11, mm. so then that 1,000 over is giving you into the low 20s. And, and so that, that, that has also been concomitantly true. So um, I'm only saying that, 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 that that's what the investor requires and that's what the market demands. Um, and obviously, I think that Henry Kravis proved early on that if you can buy a really good company that's a really big company that where the risk of failure is very low that the that the LP the limited partner is going to take a somewhat lower return than if you're in the more venturesome range okay Suzanne how how's again we've talked about we keep talking about low interest rates how sensitive to the interest rate environment is um is 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 uh is the success of, of private markets and if we did get uh, we had some fairly uh, some encouragingly mildly benign inflation numbers today, but obviously there's, there's, there's concern, continuing concern about rising inflation and ultimately, at minimum, the withdrawal of all this credit from uh, central banks and possibly higher interest rates. How do you position yourself? I mean, you know, what, do you, what, do your, what do your LPs say about that? What do you, what, what's, what's the sense of the role for, for, for private markets in possibly a, a, a changing interest rate environment? Well, so we look at it as a limited partner in funds and for most of our portfolio. And so it's really the you know first vintage year investment period and sort of the, the, the whole period of the investments, which is 10 to 12 years. And most companies are probably within the five to seven year range. So that's the fund life. And so if, in an, if the interest rates rise during the life of the fund, your, your assets might be somewhat at risk because the opportunity cost of capital has is, is, is sort of been damaged. But if you're over that series, it's that whole period, you may have a smoothing effect as well. So we don't take into account much um, rising interest rates over a five-year investment period because you're buying in along the way. And so it really does behoove um, the manager, the investor, to be focusing on operational value add versus just the financial engineering, which is what Partners Capital is always trying to underwrite. Visiony, um it, from your perspective, from your company's perspective, um, I, I think one of the things you, you've been seeing um, is, is, a, um, is a sort of a broadening of asset classes, um, yeah. right? And the idea of some of the private, private, uh, private markets, private equity, were becoming well, becoming one-stop operations for VC and private equity and credit. Tell us, tell us how, how that's developing, and again, what opportunities there are that you see from, from that development. Yeah, I mean, I see this, and I, I'm, I'm sure this is shared by by the audience and by my my uh, fellow 
partners on the stage, I mean, the growth of our industry, I think, is at least twofold. The first one that we've discussed so far, which is private equity, like equity investment behind entrepreneur and great management team, which is enlarging and growing, but also some complete new asset classes, which are being filled in, supported by players like us. I mean, think about private debt. You know, the commercial bank have disappeared after the great financial crisis. At least I'm talking about the European markets where we as, you know, private equity investors, we turn to private debt players, although it's more expensive, but it's more agile. We really hand in hand as partners. So private debt as an asset class in private equity has emerged extremely strong over the last like 12, 15 years. Think of um, financing the future, impact funds. Um, who is raising money? We are. Who is investing that money? We are. I mean, there's not that many source of capital if you want to invest in technology of the future, impact, um, climate, um, new businesses being concerned by climate and carbon neutrality. So think of us as not only growing what has been here for decades, but also inventing complete new way of developing and deploying resources which you can't really find anywhere else, neither in the public market nor through um, that many institutional financing. So I think we're filling some gaps um, with, um, you know, value add and, um, and uh, commitment and, you know, real engagement yeah. behind some investment themes and belief. Peter, on the, on the interest rate question, private credit, again, your specialism would seem to be particularly sensitive to that. Is that... Um, how do you see that? How do you, how, how do you see the credit environment in the next in the next couple of years, and how it how it affects your particular sector of private markets? Well, the traditional credit investing concern with interest rates is high rates equals a higher interest burden on borrowers. So it's always been a historical credit concern, but in many many years now, uh, that's really diminished because interest rates are so low, and even any expectation of higher rates are at still such low levels that given the credit quality of borrowers, the amount of excess cash flow that they generate, it's, it's not the concern that it once was. Interest rates are still relevant though, of course. Um, and as Suzanne said, it's, it's not about market timing, it's about averaging in over time. Um, with private credit, two comments, comments I would make, um, and I'll come back to interest rates. As Virginia was just saying, uh, private credit offers a lot of opportunities, including for new types of businesses to get financed. In the US, private credits really breaks down into two big buckets. The traditional one, bank-originated, broadly syndicated bank loans, the original form of private credit. Um, those loans are to private, almost all, but not exclusively private, mid and large cap domestic US companies. If you wanna have credit exposure to them, that's the only place you can get it. And that's a big part of the U.S. economy and arguably the most stable. And these are not multinationals. These are the heart of the U.S. economy, mid and large cap. The other segment, which is new, of course, is direct lending, which are small cap leveraged borrowers, mainly private equity sponsored small, small businesses. Um, that asset class is new, though, and it's a result of banks, for regulatory capital reasons, pulling back from lending to smaller companies. So we've yet to see how that group of borrowers will fare in a in a 09 type recession as opposed to a 2020 um, 90 day recession um, as it relates back to interest rates it's a central question for any investor in private credit because they're looking for yield 
Now, the good news about private credit is spreads, spreads have remained elevated, uh, mainly for market technical reasons, even though the underlying benchmark, which is currently LIBOR, soon to be SOFR, is practically zero. So it's, a, it's an attractive investment, even though effectively there is no interest rate component to the return. Obviously, it's been an extraordinary, uh, unprecedented in our lifetimes, uh, 18 months uh, of, of this pandemic. I want to get an um, assessment from each of you on what your sense is of what's changing, what's, what, what has changed, um, obviously, what's changed over the last year and a half, but I mean, what's changed structurally as you look out at the investing opportunities and the investing climate uh, now over the next few years. We've seen, obviously, uh, extraordinary growth of um, technology, uh, the use of technology. Uh, we've seen a very bifurcated economic performance um, between you know, companies that have done extraordinarily well and have accelerated in the last year and a half and those that haven't. We've seen kind of a continuing hollowing out of, of retail, uh, you know, traditional retail. Um, and I wanna, just want to get a, your sense of what, you, what of these changes that you've seen in the last year and a half are permanent and what, again, how that affects your your, your, your investment strategies, your the way you look at the, the overall economy and the opportunities. Uh, Virginia, I, I start with you. What, what, what's changed in the last year and a half? Permanently changed. <laughs> Many things, but a lot was already there before the crisis, wasn't it? Um, so on the negative, and it's probably beyond just our conversation, I think the world, and that's extremely worrying, has become more indebted. Um, there's this bifurcation with, you know, the, the happy fews and the many left aside, education, women, child. So but that's for another panel, I guess. Um, and on the positive, which was already there, but accelerated during the crisis, um, it's a more digital world. And thanks God, it's a more responsible world. And um, I think, you know, the election that you had, at the beginning of the year in the US and the US rejoining the Paris Accord, all of this is going, as far as I'm concerned, in the right direction. So if you, if you were pre-COVID um, a digital investor, you had digital talent in your team, you were technology driven, and if you were already committed and engaged into climate and carbon neutrality at whatever you know time horizon um, and you had expertise in your team and conviction you certainly came out of this crisis stronger than ever because that's what client wants that's what entrepreneur wants companies in which we invest and you would be astonished by <coughs> what has really changed um, at least I'm you know I'm testifying for Europe which is the market I know best but you're being chosen today by your clients and by the companies in which you invest if you have that in your DNA. And that's, that's very real. I mean, we are winning deals or we are winning clients' trust and support because many, many years ago, we at Eurasio decided that we wanted to be acting responsibly long-term and having our own impact on society and, and climate. And this is now happening. So it's a thrill if you, if you have that expertise, if you have built that knowledge and those, um, because this is heavy work. I mean, this is, this is expertise. This is operating support. This is being a real, an operator of diversity and change and, and climate. 
these are for me the big change. If you're a tech investor, I mean, you're winning these days. How long? I don't know, because it comes back to valuation, but it's for I, the long term. I want to talk a little bit later on about ESG and impact in particular, sure. some of the concerns that maybe have been raised by, um, you know, hate to use the phrase, but you know, greenwashing or um, companies posing as uh, meeting certain uh, environmental objectives while not actually doing so. But I, I do want to come, come back to that later. But uh, Peter, to you, what, 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 what are your main, um, what are the main lessons? I mean, we're still drawing them, obviously. But what are the main lessons you've drawn from the last year and a half? I think at least the two big ones are um, just that Virginia mentioned digitization, just how effective we've all been able to work remotely. But it's meant the further disintermediation of the non-knowledge worker or of the labor worker, which is good for productivity and company profitability, but it's arguably not a good thing for society. Um, and it's accelerated. Those trends have been in place for a long time, but it's accelerated them and made them clearly structural. They're clearly structural and more potent. Um, and relatedly, um, with the previous administration, there was a heightened awareness of political risk, not only in the U.S., but, but everywhere. And that, despite everyone's best hopes, that's not diminished. So if, if anything, I think we're living in an environment where political risk, both at the national level and international level, is higher, which uh, points to more volatility certainly at the price level. Now, as a credit investor, as a long-term manager of credit investments, volatility is actually an investment opportunity. Depends on what you certainly, certainly you would think that would be true also with private equity um, because these aren't, we're talking about private markets, not public markets. But it does mean that the environment will be uh, trickier going forward. Um, with, with, certainly is, is our expectation. Suzanne? Mm -hmm your sense of what you know, what are the structural changes that we're going to see as a result of what we've the extraordinary events the last year and a half sure i, I think i might echo what virginie and, and peter both said around productivity um one of the observations is just the everyone's captive everyone's sitting at home everyone's available the number of management meetings that a private equity or venture capital firm can have are five times what could have been uh two years ago their pipeline of deals that they're pursuing, um, you know, can come to life because people are sitting home and having conversations. Um, I also look at it from the limited partner side and perhaps even from the, just the industry overall, it has become more inclusive because even small limited partners can access the, the, the general partner to have a meeting to perform their due diligence without expensive time traveling to meet with them on, on, on their own ground. So, I look at it as a super efficient time. I think it will probably remain um, in place for, for a good period of time until animal spirits start to kick in and you have a lot of people running on planes and everyone else starts to feel left out. <laughs> but I, I, it, you know, in the meantime, it's been a really productive time and, and you see it just throughout the, the, um, the industry. Tom, and your observations about the last the, the, well, the pandemic and its <clears throat> long-term your, changes it re re your, your, your first premise was tremendously accurate. You talked about the velocity of change. The, velo the cha changes are happening at a rapid rate, changes all up and down the spectrum, so that we have to be uh, very, very careful when we invest today uh, because things are change, changing rapidly. Um, 
I, I don't know if we want to talk about it now or uh, later, but so often we're being asked to invest on a pro, on a pro forma EBITDA mm. compilation of uh, numbers that mm. uh, looks out into the future <laughs> and that sort of calculates what the run rate EBITDA or the run rate profitability of the company should be or might be with a few things that are just happening during, during the next quarter. So anyway, uh, that's something that we must be very, very careful of. In, in terms of our own activities, uh, in this last pandemic period, um, and certainly Suzanne mentioned, <coughs> the uh, velocity, again, at which we're doing business is uh, dramatically in increased. The number of in incoming transactions has increased. The volume of work that we have, the volume of work that we have imposed on our own staffs and having seen the Goldman Sachs revelation of, gee, we're working our younger people 100 hours a week, and we looked around and said, oh my God, that's what we're doing too, and we just can't do it like that because, of course, not having to travel into the office and so on and so forth, it, it became easier to impose on people. So anyway, information coming from companies digitally, the lack of travel, okay, compressed the time frame of the receipt of this information and the digestion of the information and how we work with the companies, uh, the number of acquisition opportunities that we are seeing. And, and then, of course, if we're buying a company, if, if, if we're looking at buying, it, it isn't just us in a so-called auction. It's dozens of firms, possibly scores of firms, could be a hundred. Wow. Hopefully, if we're selling a company, we're going to get that kind of a that that kind of result also, and that happens from time to time. But but the 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 entire activity level is very very high. So uh, is it is it your very first question of the whole meeting is is it indeed too hot not to cool down? But that's that's for another question. Thank you. The uh, I want to talk about the the, the the broader climate. I want to talk about some of these uh, ESG. Uh, and impact and other issues too in a moment. But the, the, if you like, the kind of the broader cultural or political climate that we live in. I mean, obviously, one, again, one of the one of the reasons none of you has really talked about this, but one of the reasons private markets have been so attractive for so long is obviously because they're subject to less onerous regulations. And whether you're a whether you're an, you know whether you're an investor, or particularly whether you're a uh, you know whether, whether whether you're whether you're someone um, you know who's considering going public versus staying private. You know, the, the regulatory environment is obviously extremely important, but we live in an environment where, especially here in the United States, we have a Democratic administration, we have a Democratic Congress, which has signaled its determination to to take, a, if you like, a more, uh, should we say, aggressive approach towards some business practices. And I wonder, as private markets grow um, at, at these kind of rates that we've been talking about, um, they're obviously not going to, by definition, they're not going to be subject to the same kind of uh, regulatory environment that public markets are. But um, Suzanne, maybe I could start with you. Is that something we're going to see change? Are, are we going to see more, um, you know, more, we're going to see more pressure for regulation, for uh, scrutiny than we have right now? Or do you think that's just, would that, would that just kill off uh, the opportunity represented by private investing? Well, regulation um, will has always been been in the wings, and uh, the private equity industry has been able to sort of um, <coughs> navigate it pretty effectively. I think relative to public markets, however, it's still you know really under the radar in terms of um, you know just 
the, the mark to market risk of the portfolio, which valuations is probably the one thing that um, would come under scrutiny first and foremost from a regulatory perspective. But being a public company, you think about all of the costs imposed on the mm. company to um, address, you know, climate, um, to address, um, you know, various diversity inclusion initiatives, all really positive. But in a private company context, you can make rapid, aggressive investment to get those things accomplished without having the risk of public market um, mm -hmm. earnings being, you know, a sort of uh, the public stock price being damaged because your earnings are coming in below expectation and the smoothing effect. So, you know, I sort of see the private market as still a real um, an opportunity to actually take a, a leadership role in a lot of the transformation because it can really be effective. Your vision, you talked a little bit about this, and, and Suzanne just, just meant, made this good, very good point too, that to some extent, um, the pressure uh, is coming from a kind of almost a self-regulatory or from, you know, from, from the investors to some extent themselves. We've seen these uh, um, in the last couple of years, whether it's you know, BlackRock and um, uh, you know, re requiring um, certain ESG uh, uh, obligations on, on, on the part of its, uh, part of its farm, part of its managers, part of its partners, you know, companies like Goldman um, requiring um, certain composition of boards, gender and racial comp composition of boards. Uh, you know, is this, I'm wondering, is, is, to be cynical for a moment, is, it, is this kind of window dressing? Is it public posturing? Is it public relations um, in order to sort of forestall broader political intervention? Or is it something that is genuine and are private investors responding to it in a positive and favorable way? I mean, if I may, I'll answer from the private market standpoint and mm. not and go into your however you like from whichever perspective. Or, you know, announcing. Mm. I believe the with the size and the power of our industry, mm. we can make, as you <coughs> mentioned, significant changes because we're we're still quite small, but extremely mm. agile and extremely powerful in terms of resources. So you think of a GP like it's, it's a thousand people. Um, we are 350 people in my company, but we invest in more than 500 companies worldwide. You know, we have impact on the life of thousands and thousands of employees and people and families. So we have the power because we have the resources and the talent. So if you have the conviction and if on top of this, there's an awakening, you know, the clients, you will be amazed during there's no due diligence today of any of our clients which doesn't start with ESG. Hmm. It's completely the other way around. Of course, you need performance, you need return, you need financial performance because that's what you're here for. But it's not enough. You need financial performance for the long term with responsibility and have some impact through the companies through which you invest. So it's not about... Um, at all greenwashing and if anyone in the industry is just trying to you know to play cues you're you know you you're you're uncovered in half an hour because you can't talk about climate neutrality if you don't have expertise because it's extremely technical everything is valued and measured and published and and you go from step one to step two you need expertise well, and, excuse and, me, though, can, but can I be a little bit cynical for a moment and at least yeah. say, as a, I play the role of the cynical journalist, uh, and say, you know, to some extent, hasn't that been easier to 
execute in a climate of extraordinary financial uh, growth, financial uh, success. I mean, with this low interest rate environment, the extraordinary bull market that we've seen, which you know, argue, you know, by, you know, some measures has been going on for thirty years, and so you know, it's it's kind of easier. In, in that with that rising tide to kind of to, 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 to meet these specific objectives, whether it be environmental, social, governmental or, you know, diversity, equity and inclusion. But if we hit some, you know, yes right, if we hit no. some turbulence, if we if we go through, you know, another 2006, 2007 or we hit, go, well, God forbid, another yeah. bear market of the 1970s. Are, the, are, are, they, are people going to cling to those those those, no, those because goals? You have to have another conviction, Jerry, because mm-hmm. it's about a better performance. You have a better financial performance if mm. you incorporate in the way you accelerate the transformation of your company, you are getting a better financial performance by taking care of diversity because if you're convinced that being diverse you know, brings better decision-making and better efficiency, then you're back to step one. You are delivering a better financial performance. So whatever, wherever you are in the cycle, you better take those diversity and climate you know, objective into your own transformation in your company. You're, now you're going to pay per tons of gas, CO2. You know, it's 60 euro per ton. It was 10 four years ago. So this is real money. So if you're convinced that this is real money, it's not about having a great momentum of high growth that you're then spending some time and some resources on diversity and climate. This is a must. This is embedded into your objective of being, you know, providing better returns. Tom, your uh, you know, much of our money is coming from the biggest pension funds and the sovereign wealth funds in the world. Okay, um, as in say Calsters, Calpers, many many others. They demand it. They want it. They require it. So it's been a good kickstart for us, and we have gone with it. And ESG is important to us. And and so I I can't tell you how something good starts, but it but it started this way, and now and now we're all with it. Uh, but back to your initial question was whether under the Democratic administration yeah, whether we, we see yeah. more regulation than under Republican. I can't say that really. Uh, I am sure there there will be some. But uh, returns are going to be the main driver, you, you know, be, because we're private and because we're asking the uh, LPs to lock up for five to ten years, and 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 they can't just sell our 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 fund shares in 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 one minute on the stock exchange. That's why we must give that high rate of return. So, anyway. Peter, just quickly on these new horizons of um, ESG and impact. That, 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 assume, it's it's critically again, important, and the point's been not made even several times that Tom was just making, that um, you would want any company that you're investing in, whether you're a credit or an equity investor, to employ best practices, do what's best for the business, protect all shareholders, all stakeholders, and be better, whatever. The, the controversy, though, is, um, especially as it's, with the focus on ESG, are we talking about something that can move the needle 10% or 1%? So I'd say it's right now closer to 1%, so there's more there's more awareness of it than substantive achievement. But it's all pointing in the right direction, and it's necessary. And government needs to set kind of the guardrails, but the solutions are going to come from the private sector, and we're going to invest in that. We just have a few minutes left, so I'm going to just give each member of the panel just a 
uh, a simple question uh, about what expectations they have uh, for the way in which things may change. Um, and, and Suzanne, I know you've been in the way in which you're, the, the changing uh, practices and trends in your business, and I know you you know you you said to me beforehand that you're very interested in the extent to which you've been uh, working directly with. Um, uh, with with, uh, with with working directly with with LPs, more direct in, uh, involvement by them, growth in growth in emerge, working with emerging managers. Tell us what your what, what your priorities are for the next couple of for the next year or two. Sure. So, um, you know, we're we're trying to seek the highest performing um, opportunity set, and, and what we've at Partners Capital experienced, and I think we hope to it will be um, it will persist as venture capital. You know, there's uh, com companies staying private for longer, and so there's just much more opportunity to benefit from the growth in the that market, and I think that should be sustainable um, for a period of time. So venture capital is one. Second is direct investing with our partners. So this is you know something that's been going on for many many years. Many LPs are really interested in co-investing with their um, private equity partners. It's, it's hard to execute, and we've got a team that does it, so that's an area that we're leaning into, partners capital. And the third is emerging managers. So this is where we see a higher uh, startup um, opportunity set. People who have been in the industry for a long time, um, trained at great storied firms that want to go out on their own and really are looking for deals that are probably below the radar, off the run, smaller, there's more inefficiency, more opportunity for value add. And so um, that's an area where we're spending a tremendous amount of time and that's on a global basis. And those three areas have been quite accretive to our performance over the last six years. Tom, I'll ask you, kind of your, what do you, what do you, what, what, what's your eye, what, what balls do you have your, your eye, particular balls you have your eye on in the next uh, couple of years, either in terms of the way you work or in terms of opportunities? Give your sense of what your priorities are. Well, first of all, just on a personal basis, we are so looking forward to getting back into the office. And we Amen. Are, Amen. Right, Amen. We're not there yet. So. <laughs> and also, I must say, we look forward to being able to spend time in person with the corporate man management. So well, while that seems like a very simple answer it's something that we that we haven't been able to really do um, certainly we are uh, working with the managements uh, uh, of the companies that we invest in in terms of helping them grow okay we 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 happen to be a firm that doesn't try to run the companies that we invest in but we assist and and that's in many many areas in terms of corporate strategy development and in terms of uh, deal flow. So uh, it's 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 as if we've been on the outside of our portfolio looking in, and we are so anxious to get back to business. So basically, it's a very simple answer. Something like normal. Peter, just quickly, your priorities. Um, you know, certainly, our our principal focus looking ahead is making sure that what we can offer and what we deliver to our investors aligns directly with what they're seeking and what their needs are, specifically their goals. And we're focused on getting better at doing that. Now, we're a credit investor. Um, so what, what people want in credit investing is safety, stability, and an attractive cash income stream. Now, the good news is with, with private credit, you can, all, the, all the raw materials to do that are readily available, and, and our job is to do the best possible job that we can delivering that and, and taking it to an even to an even better and, and even better level. And 
Virginie, I'm going to give you the last word <laughs> as you look forward to the next. Uh, Getting back to well, you're obviously traveling again, which is a, which is a, which is a good thing. So more human interaction, but but as you as you look at the next couple of years, what are the, what are the things that you're most focused? I, I vote in favor of uh, human interaction for sure. Uh, we've been certainly very efficient in the last eighteen months, but we need uh, interaction to be creative and innovative. You know, I'm fed up of working from alone from my office. <laughs> <laughs> Listen, uh, venture and growth. I would echo Susan um, in in Europe. Um, something big is happening. So I'm glad that um, we at Eurasio, but other players as well, are there to support those great um, great stories of um, leadership emerging. You know, strong businesses in in growth and and venture in in Europe. So that's that's something to watch. I would say in the next five to to ten years. I would say I'm a deep believer in making, you know, bridges and connection. You know, politically speaking, we're going backwards. So hopefully, as a private market private market player, we can, you know, strengthen those bridges. And I am, you know, representing a very old and strong, you know, player in Europe. Um, we're willing to develop our own strengths in Europe, in Germany, in Italy in the UK, but also be present in the US and also be present in China. Because the, the more you invest in, in small to mid-sized companies, the more they need a play, player who has connection mm. across mm. the globe to help them fast track their development. And I think that's, that's quite a special um, alchemy of you know, supporting mid-sized mid companies, but at the same time being yourself more of a global player with a good understanding of the US and of China, if you're a European player. And then maybe the final words will be about you know, women, and I would like to bring more women to our industry. It's not just about women, it's about more diversity, because um, that's what we need in order to be better at what we do. We need to be more diverse, more gender balanced, and there's, there's still a lot to a lot to go, still a lot to work on, um, even seen from 2021. So I make that wish. Thank you. Very good note on which uh, to end the session. Uh, ladies and gentlemen, um, thank you very much indeed for uh, being here, for, for listening. Thank, I want to ask you, if I may, to join me in thanking our terrific panel for sharing their time and their insights this afternoon. So please, thank, thanks, thank you thanks. very much.